Welcome to the second season of Songwriter, a podcast of stories and answer songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today we have a brand new song from songwriter Louise Cairns. But first, the story that inspires the song. My name is Malachi McCourt. I am a Brooklyn-born American. I speak this way because I was taken to Ireland when I was about uh, four years old. And I'm 87 years old. And I'm in what the Irish call the departure lounge. Malachy's brother, Frank McCourt, wrote the best-selling memoir, Angela's Ashes, which won accolades from all over the world. Won the Pulitzer Prize. So that started me writing. Malachy has since written 10 books, including his most recent, Death Need Not Be Fatal. I love words, that's what it is. And, and, and coining them and fooling with them and punning with them, joking with them. Somebody said that the Irish derive the greatest benefit from the English language. They court it like a beautiful woman. They make it bray with donkey laughter. They fling it at the sky like paint pots full of rainbow colors. Then they make it chant a dirge like a soft rain falling over the barren earth. They have taken the language of the oppressor and turned it to sorcery. Those of you who read Angela's Ashes know that Malachi and his brother grew up in terrible, grinding poverty. We had nothing. And it's humiliating because where we were, particularly in Limerick, everybody knows knows your shoes are busted, your arse is out through your trousers. Everybody knows there's no money coming in. They see you going down to the dispensary to get the few shillings of uh, of uh, relief, welfare, whatever it was. We got 13 shillings a week from welfare, and we got, that was six shillings was for the rent, and then, then that left seven shillings for food, clothing, and... You know, my mother and four kids. And think about, uh, about, about poverty is the humiliation. There is no hope. And, and then there's the unwritten thing of that people think it's a moral issue with people because God doesn't take out revenge on people except on bad people. I think that's the underlying thing about it. You're bad people. That's why you're suffering like that. I, I did sometimes think that I must have done something, offended God, or they're always talking about, you know, what you, every time you do something, you're driving another nail into Jesus' hand, you know, they give you all that kind of stuff, you know. Desperate for work, Malachi and Frank's father eventually moved to England. He went to England at the outbreak of the war, 1939, so I was uh, eight. Well, the story was going to send money, as there was no employment in Ireland at the time, and Ireland was neutral in that war. So they started gearing up for the war, so all the factories then went to war production, so they were mad looking for labor because their men were all gone to the front, you know, Dunkirk and all that kind of stuff. So he just went over there and uh, 
For a few weeks, he sent some money, and then he was gone. More than a decade would pass before Malachi saw his father again. So I went to Coventry. I was in the Air Force, and I I searched around. I went to somebody's. I said, where do the Irish drink around here? So I went to a bar. And they were a bit evasive. But anyway, somebody finally told me, your father's in prison. It was his 23rd conviction for drunk and disorderly. So he'd get three months every time he did something. When he got drunk, he was very loud and all. He never hit us, but he would uh, assault the, the law enforcers. So he had this old jacket on, he had torn pants and odd, I remember he had odd shoes. They, were, they, didn't, they didn't match and he was unshaven and it was very sad. I, I, I thought I didn't want to see him, it was too painful. So I didn't, I didn't go back, that was it. Maliki's story takes place just a short time before his father left for England. My father, as, um, who was also called Maliki, was uh, an undemonstrative man. Irish men uh, have difficulty with, uh, with exhibiting love. I never heard my mother or my father tell each other that they loved each other. I never heard them saying to us that they loved us. And uh, I don't ever remember saying I love you to my parents or anybody really. But he was a man that loved walking. He had uh, incredible energy. And one day, out of the blue, he said to me that we should go for a walk. I was astonished at this, that he was going to take me out of four kids with him. So we set out from our... We lived in a slum. People are always thinking of Ireland as uh, so oh, green and beautiful and so forth. They should have seen this damn place. So getting out there and a very short distance away, then there was the island of fantasy with the green fields and the lovely trees and streams and the quiet. So we walked out to a place called Ross Brine. And just before this, uh, we had to cross uh, railway tracks and the train came roaring through. Of course, that was very exciting. And then he said, we're going to go over here to a well. It has magical water. You will never taste water like there is in this well. My mind then started wondering about what I was going to do. When I drank this water, I was going to fly and do all sorts of things. So we got to uh, what they call a stile, which is a little wooden structure that gets you over into a field, because all these fields were surrounded by stone, stones are heaped upon stones. And we got into a field that had a whole bunch of cows in there. And I, being seven, was a small creature. 
And those damn cows, they all look like rhinoceros or elephants or very dangerous looking creatures. But he just waved his hand and they just uh, ran off, which uh, again uh, gave me the indication that this man was very powerful. We walked on a bit and we came to another wall with another style, so we climbed over that. And down to the middle of that field, there was a clump of trees. And we reached that, and there, in the middle of that clump of trees, was this hole, what seemed to be a hole, with lovely, clear water. And he said, now drink the water. So now that water was beautifully cool, and somehow or another, I recall the feeling of the word that comes to my head, it permeated my body as it went on, and I felt sort of peacefully powerful. And I thought, this, this is just like my father. <laughs> I've become like him from drinking this water. So then he said, we're going to lie down over here now, and we're going to rest for a while. He started telling me tales about how clouds meet and how they get to know each other and how they get married. And I could see those shapes of faces and of bodies as he was talking. And the birds tweeting and singing and all that. And not too far away, the occasional moo from the cows. And his voice was so soothing. And then all the birds all started settling into the tree and there's this rustling and movement and like little children do when they get into bed, turn and toss and before you, you go to sleep. And that was all I was thinking about. They're doing the same thing that we do when they go to bed. And my father said, all God's creatures have one thing in common with us. They all know how to pray. And that's what they're doing now. They're saying the prayers before they go to sleep. So then after the sun had gone down a bit, he said, it's time for us to go home. So we rose up and walked back, climbed over the stile, and we climbed over the other stile. And all of a sudden I felt, I said, I can't, walk anymore, I'm too tired. So uh, he lifted me up and I went sound asleep on his shoulder. And, uh, and that was it. I don't remember getting home or getting to bed, but the next thing I knew it was morning and it was time to go to school. Years later, I went out to that very place where I thought we had gone with my father. Now he had gone off to England and uh, we didn't hear from him. He uh, essentially deserted us. So I wanted to um, resurrect him, resurrect this memory of the love 
that I had for him because I was in a rage about being hungry and cold and dirty and all the things that poverty brings. So I went out that road through the white gates where the train had come. I found that stile where we had climbed over. I walked across, I thought, the field, and then I climbed the other stile, and I went to look for the, for the well. And it wasn't there. And I searched maybe a half mile in either direction, and I never found that well. I never found my father again either. All disappeared. And now for the song written in response to Malachi's story by an old friend of mine. My name's Louise Cairns. I am a mum of two girls, Molly, who's 10, Martha, who is two. And I am a singer, a piano player, songwriter and a music teacher. Um, so when I first heard Malachi's story, it struck me um, that despite the content and the topic, I couldn't help but feel like there was so much warmth in the way he wrote. It was kind of opposite to the subject matter, if that makes sense. It's not an angry story. It's not a one-sided, bitter story about, you know, you left me and this is what you've done to me. I felt it was quite multifaceted in terms of trying to paint a picture of somebody that he doesn't really know. When I first started writing the song, I I really tried to get into the head of Malachi's dad. It's, it's difficult actually to know why I decided to take the dad's point of view rather than Malachi's. Um, I suppose one of the reasons is that, you know, Malachi expresses this so well and so poignantly and, you know, the, the, there's a definite, there's a definite point of view there. And I suppose I was just curious as to this person that doesn't have a voice in the story I had this idea in my head of a crib and a creaking kind of wooden crib rocking backwards and forwards throughout the song and somebody creeping away. It was dreamlike. It was almost like a bit of an, I don't know if I'd go as far to say a nightmare, but it was, it was definitely a bit haunting. think as a parent sometimes we all try and lock ourselves in the bathroom for five minutes to give ourselves some peace but that's what we do and then we come back and we're okay again you know I think we all have those times where we go I really just need an hour I really just need a walk around the park and then I'll come back and I'm fine but I need I need some time I think that was where I think I, th- I changed it to a girl and I'm not really sure is it because I have daughters myself I don't know a child has not got much to hold on to in terms of who their parent was, um, then they're going to create the best possible version of this person that they can. 
you know, the dreamlike quality that comes out in the story. You know, I've not been in that position, but it strikes me as being something that if you didn't have something for real, then you would create something that was the best possible version. Is it possible that he thought, well, if I leave, then the idea that Malachi has of me will be far better than the reality. And I would rather he thought brilliant things of me, even if they were fantasy, than what I am in reality. He can, he can tell lots of wonderful stories about his dad. Talking to Louise, I remembered something Malachi had told me that could explain some of the warmth and empathy in his story. Malachi, like his father, was an alcoholic. Children all carry buckets, this is the way I think about it. And other kids fill their buckets up with sand, right? People like me fill ours up with shit. So we start carrying shit. Then somebody says, your buckets are full. Other kids will fill up their buckets with sand. No, we got to fill them up with shit. Refill and the buckets get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And then you find yourself going through life carrying shit. And your hands are closed over the handles of buckets of shit. And somebody says, put down the shit. What? Well, I'm used to it. Used to the smell. Put down the shit. Your hands are open to give and receive all the graces and rewards of life. It's very simple. Keep your hands free to love and live. That's it. If Louise is right, Malachi's story can perhaps best be understood as an allegory. The childish dream of Malachi's father disappeared in the cold reality of adulthood, and so too the magic well. Here's Louise Cairns with her song, Baby Rocks. Baby rocks in the dead of night Couldn't make it work so I threw you Oh, so still way less than I drank Oh, so still worth more than I was paid Baby cried and it never went away Sorry from afar and it haunted me Baby, baby, walks when I clean. Baby. 
written and performed by Louise Cairns and produced by her brother, Mark Cairns. The next episode of Songwriter will feature a story from Soman Chinani and a song written in response by the Cave Twins. As some of you may have noticed on the episode listing, the last show of season two will feature a story by the comedian and actor Michael Ian Black, but I haven't listed who will write the song in response. This project is about inspiration, and it's an exploration and a celebration of the creative community. And since I want to expand and diversify the range of artists the show features, I wanted to invite songwriters and poets and authors to write a response to any piece featured on Songwriter and send it to me, or just tag me on social media. I'll pick one of you to write a response to Michael's story, and if there are enough of us, I'll organize a live online show, a kind of uh, creative open mic night, to feature some of the best work. Speaking of creative work, I'll be releasing an EP of songs I've written in the last year, many of them in response to stories from Songwriter. The first one of these is called Infection, and is written in response to, well, these times. The EP is called Collision and will be out this fall, and I'll embed the song Infection at the bottom of today's show page. Songwriter is proud to be part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, and you can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Thanks also to Acoustic Cafe, the syndicated radio program that airs segments and songs from Songwriter on 125 radio stations across the U.S. for 2 million listeners. Last, thanks so much to you for the listeners in Australia and Germany and Spain and the UK and Canada and Norway and the Netherlands and Ukraine and New Zealand and the US. I see you and I'm thrilled. Thanks. Thanks.